jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle, murking fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme. I'm a boss. Flip the coin, toss, this draws. I'm out of loss. How my brains get busted, slinging let- This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the distinction between opinion and fact. I've been thinking about education and historical perspective. I've been thinking about artificial boundaries and statehood. I've been thinking about the power of the government and the power of the people. I've been thinking about morality and about the line between knowing what's right and actually doing it. My guest today is professor and author Claire Brown, Ph.D. She's a professor of economics and director of the Center for Work, Technology, and Society at the University of California, Berkeley. She's the chair of the Committee on Education Policy of the Berkeley Academic Senate and past director of the Institute of Industrial Relations. Her new book is Buddhist Economics, an Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science. Welcome, Professor Brown, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. I'm so happy to be here to talk with you about Buddhist economics. I want to start with a um, quick review that was on the back of your book uh, by Keltner, the author of The Power Paradox. He says, revolutionary and urgently needed, this brilliant and beautifully argued book will not only change how you think about the most pressing problems that concern us all, it will inspire you to passive action that lead to those problem solutions. This is a game-changing read. And it certainly was. And I want to start with what inspired you to take action and write this book and get these thoughts and, and theories into printed word. That's a great place to start because Buddhist economics evolved slowly for me. I had been teaching Econ 1 to 800 students, and we were teaching them basically about free markets because it's a simple model, it's easy to learn, but it ignores inequality and ignores global warming, our two biggest economic challenges. So both as a teacher, I was you know, not real happy with everything we were doing in Econ 1 or introductory economics. And the students were also wanting more. So I also am a practicing Tibetan Buddhist. And one day I was out walking my greyhound and I'm thinking, you know, how would Buddha teach introductory economics? Surely he cares about inequality and what we're doing to the planet and especially relieving suffering. How could we bring all of this into an economic way of thinking that allows us to actually move to a world where we provide well-being for everyone? And that's how it all started. So I started teaching a seminar called Buddhist Economics. One of the reasons I love Berkeley is, you know, you say, hey, I want to start teaching an undergraduate seminar on something that allows us to explore more deeply an economic system that's more holistic. And the department says, wow, that sounds great. Go for it. So I started. And there's lots of economics out there that you can build on um, by Nobel laureates like Amartya Sen and uh, Joe Stiglitz. And and there's just lots that's out there if we can just figure out how to bring it together to think more holistically. So that's what got me going. It's so interesting to me that you mention it being in, in a, what your class was in Econ 1, that it was a simple model and easy to learn, because I think that's really relevant, that that may be a couple of the aspects of why it then becomes the popular model for economics and, and for teaching it, and that it perpetuates. So let's start there a little bit uh, Dismantling that, the, what is the dismal science and, and why you refer to it as that or it's referred to as that and how that basic theory of economics got started, the traditional model. So you're right. It's, yeah, this will a traditional uh, market, it's, it's a competitive model. It's based on competition and the press and the politicians call it the free market model, which it sort of is. Um, There's no such thing in the world as free markets, by the way. Government has to structure and set up markets for an economy to work. So free markets is just sort of a catch-all phrase. But what it means is that if you set up a very simple model, it's based upon competition, where all the consumers are out there and they know everything they need to know and they're all rational and they can make all the choices they want to make. They can invest in education or health care The sky's really open to them. They just have to make their decisions and choices. And on the other side, 
firms are totally competitive. There is no market power. There is no big firm that uh, has a very large part of the market. They're just lots of little producers and they compete with each other and they can't control price. That's pretty important. And that's why I said there's actually no such thing as this so-called free market because first of all, consumers don't behave rationally, we know. We also know they don't have nearly enough information when it's very hard to get the information they need. And also, many of them are excluded from even participating in the market because of their poverty. So that doesn't work on the consumer side. And on the firm side, we know there's market power. I go out and talk to a CEO and said, gee, how would you like to be in a competitive market? And the CEO, usually a man, says, oh, my gosh, that would be awful. I couldn't possibly participate in a competitive market. I wouldn't make nearly enough profit. I said, oh, that's right you would make a really low rate of return, like 3%. He said, oh, no way. No, we need to have market power. We really need to control the market we're in, and that's our aim. And so you can see that both on the consumption side and the firm side, this model doesn't really exist or work. But it's a very simple model to teach. And not only is it simple, but it's fair. And the one outcome of competition, Ellie, is that when you have a competitive market, nobody has power to dominate. Everybody gets to participate, and so it's fair. Well, if you don't have these assumptions, though, you can end up with very unfair markets and outcomes. Well, and so it's so interesting to me as I was reading your book, because I thought, okay, we're operating on this model that's based on these elements for it to work. And so on paper, if you have all these elements, it it sounds like a great model. You have um, a a free market because you have rational decision makers, you have perfect information, there are no excess profits, there's no underutilized labor or capital, everyone's participating, everyone is participating fairly, and so it all works out. Everyone is benefiting and resources are used well and everyone goes home happy. And yet when you compare that model to reality, very simply, there's no really argument that none of those elements are operating as they have to within this model to be successful. And yet, with that, we all go happily along uh, using this model and um, assuming that it's working just as it should and that we have a free market and, and that, you know, there's not a, there's not a problem to be solved. That's, that's right. That's really well put. Thank you. Um, yeah, let's, let's just look at it this way. If you have power, you are running a big corporation with market power, you're very happy. You want to maintain your status quo. You certainly don't want competition. If you are upper income, the top 5%, top 1%, you have plenty of income to basically control consumption. You can go in and you can buy anything you want, anywhere you want, and you're also very happy with the outcome. So, the rich are dominating the consumption side of the economy, the large corporations are dominating the producer side of the economy, they're very happy with their power and their outcomes, and so they love the so-called free market model to explain why it's so-called fair, even though it's not. (laughs) So, So that helps perpetuate it. But there's also one more element I didn't mention yet Um, that's really important in this model. And that's in the competitive free market model. All costs are incorporated in the price of the product. So that means there's no externalities like air pollution, like carbon emissions, like dirty water, like chemical contamination of the soil. All of that is incorporated into the price. But we've No, of course, none of those things are incorporated into the price. So producers now don't have to pay for all this pollution of the air, the water, the land, and neither do the consumers. But unfortunately, somebody's paying indirectly, the earth and people's health. So that's one other way that the market's not working. It's not incorporating the cost to the environment of our system. 
So in a pure or an accurate economic model, those would be incorporated. And I'm going to even just take a step, one step backward, just for a couple minutes before we dive into what would be the alternative approach, the Buddhist economics approach, which we'll spend the rest of the show on. But I want people to really understand what the current system is and where it came from. And, and on that conversation so far, I'm thinking you mentioned that the government has to set up a model. And I'm wondering about this economic model. Was this something historically that was sort of decided upon at some point or did it evolve? And was it sort of in existence and then people looked at it and tried to explain it and was there any point where it was a pure operating economic model as a free market model should should exist I'm thinking of rats and we can't test it that way we can't put them all together and see what kind of model they would come up with just on their own so just historically if you could give us maybe just a little bit of perspective on that well Adam Smith fought for the for this type of so-called free market economy in 1776 in his book that everyone knows, The Wealth of Nations, but he was fighting against a mercantilist or wealth-based, monetaristic-based economy. Um, even though he also wrote another book that said, oh, by the way, that there are immoral sentiments. This market doesn't exist, and even if it did, it would be immoral. But that's neither here nor there. Everyone goes back to Smith saying, well, the most efficient economy and it's a fair economy is the free market competitive economy so we start there and you know that was quite a while ago 1776 so we move forward 250 years and there's a very long economic history to how the theory evolved and different sides used it for what purposes but there was always a lot of politics involved because politicians need to have an economic theory or model that helps to explain to people why what the politicians are doing makes sense or is good for them. And so that's why we hear a lot about the free market model today by the Republicans. So in this model, the, the core values are fairness and efficiency. And it seems like maybe efficiency and something else has, has taken over. Um, is there any value in this model as far as sustainability? Well, if once again, if, if somehow the markets could incorporate all of the cost to the environment of our production process, then at least it would get the price right. I'm, you know, I'm not against markets. Most economists believe that we really do need markets to sell things and to have supply some, somehow equal demand. But and, and the government structure markets to help them get the right outcome. So, for example, economists, myself included, we like the idea of carbon taxes, but it's just not carbon taxes. It would have to be taxes on making water dirty, using um, your agricultural practices badly to you, so that you are degrading the soil. You would need taxes to cover every single degradation of the environment. And that's pretty impossible to, first of all, figure out, like, what would the tax be? And then secondly, to enforce it. So given that we can't do that in a realistic manner, the markets aren't going to give us the right outcomes on how to protect the environment. So if you have a carbon tax, that's fine, but that's not going to be enough because we still need to regulate the amount of air pollution. We need to regulate clean water. We need to regulate clean air. And in fact, in Europe and the U.S., those regulations have worked really well. They've really helped make the economy work better and to give outcomes that are much healthier. So let's talk a little bit about Buddhist economics and what a Buddhist approach to economics would look like. Okay. Um, Buddhist economics is based upon the idea that people are interdependent that we aren't just isolated beings, but that we're interdependent with each other, not just at home in our community, but, but actually globally. And that people are interdependent with nature, that nature isn't over there on the side and we can do what we want to, but our health and the health of nature are all one. So think of it this way. We have this visualization called Indra's net. Okay, Indra's net is, think of an infinite net has no end, but at each knot of the net, there's a jewel that reflects 
everything around it. So in each jewel, it's a microcosm of every other jewel. And so whatever is happening in one of the jewels is reflected in every single jewel. And that's the concept of interdependence or interconnection. So people are interdependent. And what does that mean? It means if you're suffering, it actually affects me. If nature's suffering, that also affects me and every other person and every other being. So, so that's basic to Buddhist economics, this idea of interdependence of people and people and nature. But it doesn't stop there. It, it, it also rests upon the idea of Nobel laureate Amartya Sen, who said, you know, what we care about in economics is how people are living. We care about their well-being. We don't really care about their income. It, it might be related to how well they're doing, but it's only one of many factors. So we also have to care about a safety net for people. We have to care about taking care of the children. We really need to make sure everyone's educated and has health care and also has human rights. So Marty Ascent, for which he won the Nobel Prize, said what we care about is how well people are living, and he called that a capabilities approach. Are they capable of developing their full self and living as they wish to live in a world that has meaning to them. So that's at the heart of Buddhist economics. And we have interdependence, and then we have relieving suffering, and we have people developing to their full potential as, as we care for Earth. I like that definition, and especially the other element that you talk about throughout the book, the basic needs being met, the full potential, realizing being able to realize their full potential through uh, opportunities and education. And also, there was another element that came throughout about participating. So also sort of being able to participate in an interesting way um, in society, which I thought was, was something I hadn't thought about before, but so important. Yes, um, being able to have family, everyone really wants to be part of a family of some type. Um, they don't have to be related, but some sense of a close-knit group that they, where everyone's caring for each other and helping each other, but also community. We need to be situated in a community where our lives are have full meaning where we can participate in all kinds of events or structures or networks to do the things that we really think are important to us. And then sometimes when things are not going well, we need to be able to reach out to, in Buddhism it's called your Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. And that's just your community. It's the people that you share values with and you care for and they care for you. So when times are really rough, what we say is, you know, you have got to go out, reach out to your various sanghas. It could be your church, your community group. It could be your workplace, it, as well as your neighbors. You, you get together with them and you make demands that things change, that you protect people, that you protect Earth in a very specific way, depending upon what's happening that's causing bad things to happen such as right now, um, the possibility of using more fossil fuels, the possibility of overheating the earth. We really have to stand up and say no. I like, too, the, the element that, that life was meant to be interesting, that, but living this way by adopting Buddhist economics, it didn't mean that things would somehow, you have to accept things to be boring, that we could still have challenges and, and, the, and for things to be, be interesting. So with the three principles involved, interdependence, compassion, and right livelihood, let's talk about those in relationship to the two biggest, what you uh, touch on as the two biggest worldwide challenges, global warming and income inequality. So maybe we'll start with, we'll get this over with early, the, the mess that we're in as far as global warming, and then we'll head to the mess we're in as far as, as, far as income equality, and then talk about solutions. Okay, you know, I think you're right to put global warming first, because as I say to my colleagues in economics, we, we've all worked on inequality for decades. It's like, we know inequality is a problem, we know the policies that can move us beyond it, but we haven't thought enough about 
global warming. So I say, you know, it's not going to matter at the end of the century if we've overheated the earth about inequality. So global warming really trumps inequality is, is a problem that we need to solve right now. And we know how to solve it. We have the technology. We have roadmaps. Williamson's de deep decarbonization, Jacobson's um, roadmap from Stanford. We, we have quite a few roadmaps about how to get to a clean energy economy and hopefully enough time that we don't go over the two degree Celsius target that we got out of the Paris Agreement. So, so we have the technology. Um, do we have the will? Well, it's a problem. The, the fossil fuel companies, especially um, backed by the money of the Koch brothers and state and local and national elections, they, they seem to be in charge right now. And the fossil fuel companies realize most likely that they're going to have to keep a lot of their assets in the ground. But right now they're getting huge subsidies from governments around the world for their ex exploration and exploitation. They have these subsidies reduce fossil fuel prices. Um, in 2014, only 40 countries paid out $160 billion in fossil fuel subsidies. So it's huge. So these fossil fuel companies right now want to get as much out of the ground as they can while they can, while they're being subsidized, and before all of a sudden all the governments say, no, we can't, we can't do any more fossil fuel. So they're all in a rush to bring fossil fuels in and get them used up and make money. Well, as you know, this is a huge problem because it's we, we don't have that kind of time to wait to reduce carbon emissions in the air. Um, it's like we already know that the present goal of limiting global warming to the two degrees centigrade is probably too hot. But even so, we're going to have a hard time reaching that goal. We really do need to dramatically reduce use of fossil fuels. And we need to keep over half of our fossil fuels in the ground that we have now, the known reserves. And yet the companies are just, the fossil fuel companies are, are going after new reserves and finding new reserves as we speak. So it's, it's really a big problem. And let me just take the problem one more, one more step. Because in the U.S., we keep saying, oh, it's China, it's China. In fact, it is true that China's right now puts more CO2 into the air than the U.S., but not by much. But if you did it by GDP, the U.S. is way out there. The amount of emissions per person by the U.S. is enormous and swamps any other country. And so in my book, I try to sort of walk you through all of this, but there is a major problem that those of us who live in the rich countries have benefited from having fossil fuel economies. And now we've got to convince China and India and the other developing world that they have not, they just can't develop with a fossil fuel economy. We need to leapfrog to clean technology. And we can, but it's gonna take money and it's gonna take a dedication that so far I don't see. And some convincing that it's in everyone's best interest to do so, right? We've got to have an interest in convincing them. We have to all understand that it is in our best interest. But I want to go back to the subsidies uh, topic just for a moment because I had to read that part of the book about six times. Because at first I was like, you know, you read something and you think, okay, wait a minute, that, that's just insanity. So how can that be true? How could we possibly be subsidizing the fossil fuel industry and to that Amount and at first I thought, well, oh, you know, there were you were talking about that we're doing it in different ways. You know, partly it's a subsidy because we aren't charging them for uh, the pollution they're creating and other things. But then after I read it the sixth time, I thought, no, no, she is saying that we are actually countries are actually paying outright subsidies to these fossil fuel companies. Yes, yes, 160 billion in, in 2014, the latest data. Is that so? We're, we are doing that, but. And I'm so sorry the rest of it was sort of not easy to understand. No, 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 it, no. But, hey. it, it's not that at mm -hmm. all. And that's the point I make. It mm -hmm. wasn't that it was 
hard to understand. It was hard to believe. And I think oh. because I found it so difficult to believe, that's why I had to keep reading it. It wasn't because it was was complicated. The way you put it out was very straightforward. But I just thought, that can't be so. I know we're subsidizing corn, and that's a bad idea. I couldn't <laughs> believe that we could still be subsidizing fossil fuels and also the fact that since we're talking about the state of the U.S., that that in the last, um, I think, in the, and I might not have the dates exactly right, but from 2010 or 11 to 14, that we actually are doing worse in that period than we had been as far as our emissions. Yeah, the 2010 to 14 didn't bother me a whole lot. We we should have decoupled. What, what happened is we were in a major recovery from a, the, the deep recession. So we were hoping that we would decouple the use of fossil fuels from um, the growth of the economy. And we didn't decouple the way we should have. By the way, Europe has decoupled much more so that Europe is able to grow without putting a lot more CO2 into the air. And so we've got to be able to do that. We've really got to decouple growth or the way we produce things with, with carbon emissions. So you're right it, that that's discouraging. But what even more discouraging is once we were out of the deep recession and fossil fuel or gas prices went low, America got even worse. People were trading in their Priuses to buy SUVs and pickup trucks. It was like, what? It's like, well, they say, well, gas prices are low and I'd much rather have a bigger car or whatever. And so that really discouraged me. It was like, just a second. We, we are definitely not going in the right direction. So, so I agree with you. We, we have to do better. I'm not sure how to get there. I, I think about that a lot. So we'll talk about that. And we also, I think it's an important or a, a relevant point, a flag waving, to see that that's how people behaved, that because gas prices were low, then they were saying, well, we'll trade in the Prius and, and, I, and, and buy the SUV. And I think that could be beneficial as something to really look at as far as how our mentality works and, and how effective then a carbon tax or other taxes might be. And we'll talk about that as well, because it's always, well, we might as well talk about, about now. How effective is a monetary taxation? Um, you talked about it in relationship to daycare, and that was a great example, that when the daycare system started charging parents for being late, that it just became part of the system where people would then just still be late, but they knew that that was part of the cost and they would pay that fee. It seems that that's happened a little bit as far as pollution taxes to a lot of the big manufacturing companies, that they just would absorb that as part of their manufacturing cost and still pollute the rivers, but then pay the fine. That, that's a really good point. And that's why I think that we need to have the fines. We need to have a carbon tax. We, we need to make people pay for the degradation, but it's not enough. You absolutely need to also regulate the market and structure the markets so that they work and give the outcomes that you think you can live with. One, one of the problems for economists is we don't think of boundary solutions. So the climate scientists say, hey, look, we have these nine systems that are critical. We can't go over their tipping point. Well, economists don't think that way, or we would really be acting quite differently. And in fact, in Science Magazine just a year ago, the, the scientists said, oops, we actually have two core boundaries that we really are close to tipping. And if we do that, the planet won't be able to survive the way that we know it. And that's climate change and biodiversity. And they also went further. They actually concluded that the global warming being limited to 2% will push Earth beyond the climate change boundary. So they joined the climate scientists that said 2% bound targets too high. Well, okay, so here we are. We know all these things, and yet we go out and buy SUVs. And so one of the things I push for in my book, and actually I push for in my daily life, is that we all want to be able to say to each other, oh, you have a Prius. That's great. That's really good. We want that to be our norm. And I had a friend who was going to go buy a new car. Um, 
they had a pickup truck. And I said, oh, great, this is your big chance to move to a much more nature-loving car. And they looked at us, and they looked at me, and they said, no, no, I'm with I always have, I said, excuse me, think about it. What do you use it for? It's like, well, it feels good. Okay. Two weeks later, my friend came back and said, thank you. Thank you so much. I just bought a Prius. You were right. I didn't need that pickup truck. And when I went and looked at the miles per gallon and the carbon pollution, I was shocked. So, so partly people aren't thinking even about how they're hurting the earth. So, Sort of step one is education, but then step two is sort of creating the social norms that get people to live differently and in more in tune with nature. Those are those are really important aspects of Buddhist economics. So I have two questions, and they're there. One is if ec- economists don't think as far as boundaries, and how, if you just might explain that quickly, just a minute. How do economists think so differently? Well, <laughs> the climate scientists. Well, some economists, they're called ecological economists, do think like a climate scientist, and I'm in that camp. But the majority of economists love to make trade-offs. Every our models work when they're trade-offs. Trade-offs are a really important part. So what we think of is, oh well, if I put some CO2 into the air, all I need to do is make an adjustment over here um, with the way I use workers. And, and that trade-off will be just fine. I still get the same output. But you say, no, no, just a second. You don't get the same output. You don't get the same national income. You actually get a really different outcome. You get a degradation of the environment that may tip you over and change the ability of humans to live on the earth. Or you may just get the cars you need. But you can't just look at it as how I'm producing cars or how I'm using cars. Those trade-offs are not actually what is a correct analysis. You can't just assume these nice trade-offs we have between using people or using the atmosphere or using natural capital. Those things cannot be traded off within a model that's consistent with what climate science teaches us. Does that make sense? It does make sense. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to talk about the way we are measuring, um, what we use to measure success and the way we are measuring uh, economic success and the other elements, um, because I think that's critical with then how we do uh, change our behavior and also develop social norms and set social norms. So we'll be back in just a moment. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with renowned economist Professor Claire Brown, and we are talking about economics and Buddhist economics, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, catch him. All right, we're back. So, Professor Brown, let's talk a little bit about the metrics and the systems that we use to measure success. And let's start with the most popular, the GDP that economists use right now, and what that means and sort of how they use that to measure success and what are the real, not only pitfalls, but inaccuracies of what they're measuring. Yes, you know, you talk to any economist and they'll tell you that our measurement of economic performance is gross domestic product, GDP, is just a measurement of the value through the marketplace of all the goods and services the economy produces. Well, we all know it's like leaves out most of the things that people care about or that create a meaningful life. But it's been in vogue for many decades. It's used around the world, and we've spent tons of resources trying to get it exactly right for market measurement. But I'm going to stop you for a minute because I don't think that most people realize that it does leave out all of those things that we really care about. I don't think people have thought about what it means and how it's used and how it really influences decisions and governments. Oh, well, it's a, it's a big problem. And that's why I devote an entire chapter in my book. Because as economists, we know how we, what we measure is very important because it's how we keep our focus. Just like you said, Ellie, it's like, what are we measuring? What are we focused on? So all we have, oh, sorry. No, no problem. So all we have, we end up with this measurement of what goes through the marketplace. So let's say 
I go out to dinner with some friends. And that this is a, it's a very nice occasion. And it's what makes life interesting and fun. And how's that recorded? Well, whatever we spend money on records it. We could just get some Mexican tacos and have an inexpensive dinner. So that's not a very high value. Or we could go to the fancy Chez Panisse restaurant and spend lots of money. And that's recorded as very high value. So one outing, one dinner could could be 10 times as valuable as another outing or dinner. Even if we rated it, I may say, wow, I didn't enjoy that that fancy dinner at all because those people were just so obnoxious and, and that just didn't work for me. I was really happier with my other friends having my tacos. But if you look at the the value of it to the economy, one was very valuable and one wasn't. So you say, oh, well, what about well-being, about how people feel, about what they're doing, about how healthy they are, about how their children are doing? How do we measure those things? And you say, oh, well, you know, economists actually have lots of ways to measure these things, too. And you say, why don't they? Well, you know, GDP has been around for decades and it's done around the world. And so it's a very easy way to measure different and compare countries. You say, and that's the reason. And yeah, actually, there have been books written on this. It's like, yeah, it seems like once you have a system in place, it's really hard to change it, even if it's not telling you what you need to know. And now that we have climate change, we especially are leaving out environmental degradation. So we have GDP measurement with no environmental degradation included. Also, the other thing about GDP is when we compare across countries, we only compare average output per person. There's no consideration of the distribution of income within the country. And so if you grow very rapidly and economic growth goes to the top 1%, as has happened in the U.S., then it looks like economic growth is the same as if the growth of our economy, the results of the growth had gone to everyone across the board. So there's no way to compare what happens when you when your growth goes for increased inequality or not. So it's, it is a big problem. Well, it is, and it's the same values, right? We're trading accuracy for representation of the numbers with, again, those values of acceptance and efficiency. Without anyone, I think, realizing that all of that is, is that all of that real information is not represented and is, is lost or distorted. That's right. And so we end up with just looking at the size of the pie. And the pie is only what goes through the marketplace. And there's nothing in the pie about sort of relationships, about human rights, about the time that people have to spend with their friends, with their children, with their communities. None of that's in the pie. The only thing that's in the pie is what you buy. So let's talk a little bit about how Buddhist economics would measure and the the happiness scale and then the consumption scale and how the U.S. is doing on those. Well, Buddhist economics would take a holistic measurement, and, and there are several. So in the book, I go through a few of them. One is called the Genuine Progress Indicator, which I happen to like because it gives you one number that is in, it provides market prices to a large, large variety of aspects of life. And you can look over time at how things are changing, both for how the distribution is across families, as well as the degradation to the environment, as well as health and education and consumption. So that brings together all the aspects of your life into one number. But there are other ways of doing it. The OECD has something they call the Better Life Index. Bhutan has the Gross Domestic Happiness Index. There are quite a few out there. Matter of fact, I think one of the problems, Ellie, is there are too many measurements out there. There, Hey, you want to do it a different way? Well, which of the 10 of these measurements would you do? And like, you, you get a bunch of economists in a room and they each come up with their own favorite. And... There's been no country and no set of economists that have taken the leadership of moving us from gross domestic product to a holistic measure. But we desperately need it. And we especially need it now with global warming and inequality, because both of those need to be incorporated 
in how we evaluate our economic performance. Right now, our economic performance ignores inequality and sustainability. You had said that your goal is to expand the dialogue among people around the world to seek who seek meaningful lives for all on a planet with thriving ecosystems. And I think if you asked the majority, there might be a few who don't, but the majority of human beings on the planet, they're going to say, yeah, we all want to be happy. We all want meaningful lives. Um, we want a, a thriving planet, thriving economies, thriving ecosystems, and we want to have a, a healthy planet. And it's nicer if everyone is doing well. It doesn't feel so good. And this has been shown even with with the current measuring systems. Economies don't do so well. People aren't as happy when there is a wider discrepancy, when there are people who are doing well and those who are, are doing so poorly. And yet, um, as you've mentioned in a couple examples, it's, it's hard to get people to change. And so let's talk a little bit about maybe what are those primary roadblocks? You know, are they cultural values or, or is it something else going on from the research you've done? That's a great question because I think it's a very complicated answer. I, I think clearly there are cultural values involved, but also I think that if, if we're measuring performance as consumerism, and if people are thinking the way to be happy is through buying more and more, which is the free market model, then saying to them, oh, well, would you trade off having less consumption and a better family life balance? And interestingly enough, time and time again, people say, oh, I would really like to improve my work family balance and have more time to do the things I care about with my family, my community, my own development. But yet, you say, you ask them why not, and you immediately understand why not. It's because the workplace doesn't allow those options. You can't just, there was a group of young lawyers, um, law students at the best law schools. They went to the major law firms and said, we would like to accept a lower pay with fewer work hours when we're young associates. And do you know what the firms all said? No. No. No, we're not willing to do that. This is our package. Take it or leave it. So that didn't go anywhere. Um, we, we need to find a way to move both businesses to provide better balance as well as higher quality jobs at the bottom. And we also need the governments to provide the incentives to do that to the companies and then to provide the incentives to the people to reward them in a meaningful way through having you know, safety nets, child benefits, um, and, and child care and things that really help families function well. So we, we know how to do this, as I said, and, and I lay out what a lot of these policies are and where they work and how they work. We, we know how to do this. It's just we have to take back the power to make these demands, both as workers and as citizens who vote, because right now, in the U.S., we aren't going in that direction. Other countries in Europe are doing better, but even they are, are having some problems. Well, and we, we also have to believe it. I mean, when you're talking, I'm thinking there's two shifts that have to go on because we are a, a country based on capitalism and materialism. And although it's been proven that people aren't happier with more things and with more once they get to a certain level, that more things and more choices even don't make people happy. You know, even in our brains, it's been shown on brain war or brain games that more choices don't make us happier and having more doesn't make us happier necessarily. I mean, there might be the few exceptions who that's what they came into this world to do this time around and they only want stuff, but that that isn't what makes us happy. And yet there seems to be a disconnect with people don't believe that because everyone is still operating in our country and the countries that are trying to catch up to be like us and have more things. Um, and so that seems like one shift that has to happen. And you're wondering where that comes from. Yes. So I love talking to young parents because they're at a crucial stage of their life. And I'll say to them, um, what, you know, you all spend so much time figuring out the exact right diet for your kids and the exact right safety stroller and this and that. You spend all this time on that. But you aren't worried about 
global warming. Why aren't you spending more time on your carbon footprint and how to reduce it? And the answer that I get is they feel powerless to do those other things. And I'm thinking, okay, so we do have to put it into this broader network. And they think, so when I feel so powerless, I think, well, I know that I can take care of what my kid eats today and how safe they are and this and that and, um, and spend a lot of money on it. But that I agree I need a longer-term viewpoint. So I think we all need a much longer-term viewpoint. Well, and to know that it's solvable, it's reminding me of the bike helmet issue, that parents would be much better off worrying about whether or not their child was wearing a bike helmet versus if their child was going to be abducted. And, and that some of these problems where we put our energy to, or, or our focus, the global one just seems maybe too big and too unsolvable. And yet you're, you're telling me that we actually have the technology and the other pieces of the puzzle in shape that we can solve this problem. Yes, we have all the roadmaps. We have the technology. All we need is the political will. And I think people would do it, but that's the role of the government. The government has to take the lead. And that doesn't mean, you know, you, you talk about a capitalist society. Capitalism just means some private ownership of, of the means of production. That's all it means. And there's plenty of government ownership, too. But what that's not the issue. The issue isn't that. The issue is the government has to provide the incentives and structure the markets within which we all operate to make them get the outcomes that we all agree is important, which is basics for everyone. All, all families have certain basics and education and health care and that we take care of the environment. And we can do that. It's just we have to to be able to say, I'm willing to push the government to do that, and I'm willing to change actually some of the things I do in my daily life to make that happen. So I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between the individual and the government. And I also want to talk about collaboration versus cooperation, because I think that's another area where this shift really has to happen. Um, consumerism, but also the idea that we grow up with, you know, com com competition is better than collaboration, which is also a false belief, which makes me crazy because it's like, no, evidence has shown again and again and again, collaboration is better for our species and, and for most things. So, but let's start with the relationship of the government to the individual, because this morning my son was talking about something and it was, I was glad he'd known about it. He's 11 and I had read about it just a couple days ago that in Idaho, where I live, and I am not proud of this aspect, that Idaho just voted to delete all language addressing human impact on the environment from our science standards, written and science standards that were written and revised by award-winning science teachers based on physical evidence. And the reason that they gave was because it didn't include both sides of the debate. So one thing, just a pet peeve of mine, is like, this is not a debate. There are differences between opinion and fact. And you can't have an opinion on something when it is contrary to the fact. That's, that's different than just your opinion. But what he said was he thought this was dictated by the president. And I said, no, no, this came from the Idaho legislature. And he's, you know, was worried. And I said, well, you know what? The government and the, and the president, they're, they're one part of our society. Um, but the real power lies with people. So let's talk a little bit about that, about the roles of the government and their policies and um, the role of the individual, individual. That's a great, great thing to hear about your son and what you told him, because you're really helping him to think critically at age 11. I love it. We need to get everyone to think that critically, right? So what... One of the problems with the free market economy is that the heart of the free market economy is the individual reigns, and free choice is all that matters to the individual. But as you say, Ellie, we know that that's just not correct, that, that people are altruistic, they want to help each other, they care about each other, they want to cooperate, and for very good reasons, that society works much better and they're happier. So... One of the problems is if you start off saying, well, I just want to do whatever I'm going to do and I don't want anybody to get in my way, then you do have a problem. Society won't function. 
Um, and it's okay if a few people are like that, but you know, the rest of us need to think more holistically and have cooperation. So we want to develop our full potential, but we're only going to do that within this broader network of what's, what our opportunities are and how we work as a family and a community. And at the local level, there is so much you can do. I work with 350 in the Bay Area, and we have done amazing things around regulating and cleaning up pollution and the air and the water. And we do it by volunteers working and then having rallies and educating. And it's wonderful. It makes you feel great. It makes you see outcomes that you care about. And we can do that. It's actually Bill McKibben, who founded 350, said, you know, as individuals, it's probably more important to get out there and work with your local officials and make changes to help the environment than it actually is and how you personally live, although you should care about both. But that it's just critical that we work together to force the government to do the things that need to be done to protect the environment and therefore to protect our health. You mentioned a book called The Cooperative Species. I want to talk a little bit about that and then talk about the difference between cooperation and socialism. <laughs> well, the cooperative species basically thinks that it was it's because of evolution that that species became cooperative. I think it actually isn't only that. That's a very economistic argument. And trust me, it's only economists who thought we had to do field work and, and some experiments to show that people were, in fact, altruistic. Finally, economists went in the lab and did some game theory and said, oh, my, everybody's not selfish. Isn't that amazing? But only economists had to be told that. And so I like the book. Um, but I would go even further in saying it wasn't just because people, the the group could, you know, sort of do better over time that they were cooperative. It's also because, as you mentioned earlier, it made people happier and more satisfied with their way of life. So it's both those things. Um, and then when you mention socialism, well, mainly we should just say maybe social democracy. Okay, and, and the reason I bring that up is because as I was reading your book, I kept, I was thinking, well, some people, you know, those those pessimistic or cynical ones are going to be reading this and saying, well, you know, isn't this just socialism? And that hasn't worked very well. You know, redistribution of wealth and, and economic equality and all these things and the government dictating, um, you know, so much of, of our choices. Well, actually, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a socialist. Uh, I'm, a, I believe in markets and, I believe in government structuring markets, but we do know from the Northern European countries that inequality can be reduced through good government policy. And Joe Stiglitz, who won a Nobel Prize, explained to us that inequality is a choice we make. Each country makes a choice of what, how much inequality do we want by our laws and our regulations and our institutions. So the U.S. has a fairly high level of inequality compared to, say, Denmark, Norway, Sweden. But it's actually, we're, we're more equal than China or India. So it varies, but it's a country's choice. You don't need socialism to reduce inequality. You just need good government policies that include a broad range of activities that help people at the bottom and that the people at the top don't end up taking it all home. And so let's talk about just one or two of the policies that maybe a country like Denmark and Norway have that do foster equality and what you see as having been the motivating factor to uh, institute those policies. Okay, well, the Northern European countries care a lot about equality and social cohesion and child welfare. So their focus has been on progressive taxation with child benefits. Um, that benefits one it's child care, education, health care, and, and they've done quite well. And so we know that we can do those policies, and there have been plenty of studies that showed progressive taxation does not harm economic growth or productivity. It only changes how the pie is divided, but not how well the economy is doing. So we already know that, although, once again, we get into people ignoring the studies and claiming, just claiming, 
oh, well, clearly progressive taxes must hurt the economy. In fact, it only affects inequality and not, not the performance. So we have that. But let me go one step further, because we also know from Germany and France, who've taken the lead in Europe of reducing greenhouse gases and being put into the atmosphere, we know that governments can put can enforce these roadmaps that we have about how to move to reduction of fossil fuel energy to clean energy. We know we can do that, and we're doing that in California also. So we know the government can pave the path for that, and then in the economy will produce a lot of jobs related to clean energy. It's very job intensive. So we have that. And then the only sort of piece of the puzzle that's missing so far is, in fact, sort of helping the developing world and reducing the population growth, say, in sub-Saharan Africa and helping women um, have better education and health care so that they can care for their families better. We, we get to that point, and that's where you sort of start to lose the developed world or the rich countries where they say, gee, why should I really care about this? Well, the main reason we should care about it at this point is climate change that we really do need to reduce the huge impact on the resources of growing populations as well as growing consumption. So we want to find a way to help the poor countries as they move to improve the quality of life, to be able to do it in a way that doesn't kill the surrounding environment, doesn't cut down all the forest, it doesn't get rid of the clean water, we, we need to do that because we care enormously altogether about the environment. And then at some level, I think it also makes us feel more integrated globally to help, to help get rid of extreme starvation, to help get rid of extreme poverty. That's, that's a, it's a terrible thing to have that in the world, and we don't need to have it. So, so we need those three steps all moving together. But it's not socialism, it's just good government policies. <laughs> I was being devil's advocate. Um, because it's not. And so that's the piece, that's the, the, the linchpin I keep coming back around to, is because what is that that make people say, oh, no, no, you know, it doesn't matter, it can't work, it's not possible, it's not, it's not, it's not good. Because you've shown that that um inequality is not inevitable i mean through the book through your, through the the evidence based arguments that inequality is not inevitable that governments not only can but are fixing these things and it is actually something that they are good at and it's not complex and that we have the technology and that people would be happier and it's not one of these problems that are so unsolvable that we just want to look the other way no matter what that at any cost we'll look the other way because it's just too scary so there's got to be some thing some element that's holding us in place. You know, if we say, okay, carbon tax does work, we have electric cars, market that there'll be new values, there'll be more jobs, there are market incentives for all of this. So as a rational economist, what do you see as the piece of the puzzle that, that is, or, or a linchpin, or however you want to phrase it, that has locked us into step? I think the way we're measuring economic performance I think we, we come back to that question of, hey, GDP, the market, just market value? No, no, it's like we're measuring economic growth and what it's, how it's helping us and our well-being incorrectly. So if we were measuring economic performance as improved well-being, then everything we're doing in the environment, everything we're moving with, to with clean energy, the way that we're building life with families and communities, all of that would be included in growth. And then things would look very, very different than just looking at what we're consuming and, and what we're buying. So really is just that one uh, newscast blurb as to what our GDP is and, oh, how are we doing well or not well? <laughs> is our economy up or down? And by changing that system of measurement and then how we're doing on it, if, if every, every day in the news or once a week on the news, instead of even our stock market number, we had our, our happiness scale or our sustainability scale flashing. 
um, that that would shift things. So who's in control of that? Who do we talk to about having that flash on our news screens instead or on our, our cell phones every hour? Well, you know, I think um, I really think the Federal Reserve Board should really push for this because they're in charge of keeping us out of recessions and they're in charge of making sure the economy is growing and doing well. And I keep pushing, you know, maybe the Federal Reserve should be working on this. But right now, the Federal Reserve is just trying to stay an independent organization because I think they've done a phenomenal job. I'm a big fan of Chair Chair Janet Yellen. Um, but I think it's going to have to be at that level that the national banks around the country start saying, let's rethink how we're measuring economic growth because the old model isn't working and it's not telling us what we want to know, which is what's our economy doing for the well-being of all the people? Well, so I'm encouraged because we've got some first steps. First step for everyone listening is to get a copy of your book. Buddhist Economics, an Enlightened Approach to the Dismal Science, Claire Brown, Ph.D. Next step is we're all going to write letters. You're going to give us the address and reason them to about how, we should, how they need to take responsibility for that, and, and we can start changing things. And on an encouraging note, I received an email from the Science Museum of Virginia, and they are introducing a five free five-part lecture series um, launching in March, connecting the community with expert resources and resiliency-themed content. Uh, climate Connections investigates our societal understanding of climate science. And that uh, they, in the promo, say a resilient Virginia is what we all want for our future and that requires tackling some of the challenges posed by climate change together. But I think it's so encouraging for everyone to know that this is not an impossible task and that we already have the capability to do so. And it's really just a matter of focus and intention. Yes, I absolutely agree. And Ellie, thank you for reading my book so carefully and knowing it so well. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, it was an absolute pleasure and absolutely eye-opening and inspiring and encouraging So and, and hopeful, which is huge. So Claire Brown, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking today. Oh, it was a, it was just been delightful. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you so much, Claire. What a pleasure. What a fabulous, fabulous book. 